Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to another wonderful issue of Masters Podcast. I am thrilled that this day has finally happened. Sometimes I hear about incredible mentors and heroes and leaders, and I am immediately connected to them. And I don't mind telling you that this one took a while because <laughs> I found this incredible woman, started following her, listening to her, her messaging through her posts, talking to other people about her. Many people agreed, yes, when this is somebody you absolutely need to interview, and today has finally happened. I'm sitting here with my new friend, Anne Malam. So, Anne, first of all, welcome to Masters. Thank you, Wynn. Sorry this took so long. I feel like I'm going to be apologizing to you for the rest of my life. Well, you know what? Put it this way. If you, if you were immediately available, I, you know, you probably wouldn't have much to share, right? Maybe that's true. <laughs> you know, what, what do they say? Is like, uh, I, I know hair salons who open at six o'clock in the morning and other people think that that's crazy. I'm like, no, you go to the gym and you know all about this. And you go to the gym at six o'clock in the morning, the place is packed and it's packed with very busy, successful people. And that's the life that you live, correct? Yeah, that that is. So fair point. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to read this so our listeners know a bit more about you. Anne is a founder, entrepreneur, CEO, philanthropist, and athlete whose mission is to help as many people as possible live their most optimized life. I love that. A true self-made success story Anne's entrepreneurial ventures have resulted in a personal net worth of over $100 million and an impact on thousands of lives, including me. She is the founder and executive chairwoman of Solid Core, a fast-growing boutique fitness company with over 90 locations in the U.S. Her newest venture, Ambition, is a fitness and wellness concept Launching in New York City in 2023. Has that already launched in? No, it launches next month. Congratulations. Ambition combines four fitness modalities under one roof, along with wellness products and programming, bringing a much needed paradigm shift to the fitness industry. A lifelong visionary and is also the founder of Back on My Feet, which, my gosh, we're going to talk about that. I love that. A national nonprofit organization that uses running as a vehicle to help those experiencing homelessness change the way they see themselves and become empowered to change their lives. Anne brings her experience and ongoing desire to learn and share success strategies on How To with Anne Malam, her new podcast. Now that did just launch, correct? It did, yes. There's a few episodes out now. Thank you so much. Well, let's promote that as well. First of all, I love powerful women. I love storytellers. And I have to tell you, Anne, you are you are one of the best. Uh, there are people who stand on a stage and they preach and they preach and they preach, but they don't tell any personal stories. It's like, okay, I get the information, but how does this relate to you? You're, you're trying to share this information with me, but gosh, did you as, as this leader, did you struggle with this information? Did you fall down and step back up and and it's those personal stories that I absolutely love. And you're not just preaching, you're telling your story. And one of your stories that I love the most, and I'm, I'm sure you've told this a million times and you're going to tell it a, a million more. First of all, it starts with your childhood, why you became a runner at 16, and some pivot life-changing moments that happened to you after moving to Philadelphia to start a new job. Is, is it okay if we start from there? 
Yeah, I can take you way back to my childhood, as long as you guys want to go on that ride. Oh, yes, we do. Yeah, so I I mean, I grew up in North Dakota, which I know not a lot of people have had that experience. But when you're a kid, you know, you think the whole world exists right in front of you. So I thought everybody grew up the same way I did, which was a bike and a yard and I could walk to school and, you know, had plenty of, of friends and it was super safe. We didn't have to worry about any crime or even locking our doors or any of that stuff. And, you know, life was honestly pretty, pretty easy <laughs> up until I was 16. And I remember being 12 and thinking I got my whole life figured out. I was, you know, going to grow up, get married to a tall, dark, handsome guy and, and have a great job and, have 2.2 kids and a white picket fence with my white big house. And, and everything was just like going to work out because frankly, it, up until I was 16, everything had been working out. And I got a really hard dose of reality. I think when I was 16 of what my dad's internal struggles were really like and, and how unstable my parents' marriage actually was. And I know there's a lot of people out there whose parents, you know, maybe ended up getting divorced or separated and I always sometimes feel like, you know, there's so many people that have had that happen to them, but it it really changed the trajectory of my life when I don't know if I would be the human that I am today or would have had the same path. In fact, I can probably guarantee I wouldn't have without that happening. But yeah, I was 16 years old and I still remember this day very vividly when my dad came home from work a little early, it was like three o'clock on a Friday and asked me and my younger brother, older sister, if we could just leave for a little while so we could talk to our mom. And of course, you know, 16 is smart enough to know something's not right. And we all left and I sort of came back first and, and no one else was there besides my dad. And I, of course, sat down next to him and my dad and I have a very close relationship. And I was, you know, a tomboy growing up and we connected through sports and so it was very apparent to me that something was, you know, very wrong. And that's the day I learned my dad had a, a really bad gambling problem where he owed people money and he didn't have it. He had been borrowing money from my grandma, my mom's mom, and things have gotten, you know, really bad. And I also want to say we just we didn't have any real money, right? We were sort of lower middle class. We had to save for years for vacations and and there wasn't a whole lot there to begin with to work with. And so my dad really ended up putting us in a financial cul-de-sac, so to speak. And my mom, this was her Achilles heel. You know, she was a school teacher, but she was very good about saving money. And my dad had, you know, really violated that. And it's important to know that this was not my first, my dad's first go around with addiction. He went through drug and alcohol recovery when I was really young. I never saw that side of my dad, but of course my mom did. And she stood by him through all of that. And he went and got sober and, you know, seemingly never struggled with drugs or alcohol again, but his addiction just started showing up in other ways. And unfortunately gambling was one of those ways. So my parents separated and for a girl who thought her life was pretty perfect, I was really upset and I spent my next three teenage years being angry at my mom, trying to fix my dad and also running a lot because it's the only thing that I thought of that I could do to just get rid of all of this negative energy floating around inside of me. So running was my outlet. I ran pretty much every day since I've been 16 years old, not as much anymore, but at that point in my life, it just was such a 
it was such a staple for me. And for anybody out there who's a runner, you understand how powerful that movement is of taking things one step at a time, knowing that there are going to be potholes and hills that are ahead of you on that route. And you've either got decisions to make of persevering and pushing through or going left or right or stopping or turning around. It's a really amazing metaphor for all of the things that happen to us in life and how we're going to deal with them. And it just gave me a ton of strength. I, I, it's it's mainly how I you know got through it. And I then spent the next few years trying to make up for this black mark that was on my life. You know, I was really ashamed that my parents had gotten divorced. Again, I know it's a common thing, but in Bismarck, North Dakota, there really wasn't any of my friends that had friends who had parents that gotten divorced in high school. So I felt very much like an outsider. And I, I didn't want that for my life. I wanted it to be quote unquote perfect. So I became even more on a mission to create this life of perfection for myself. And I went to college. I graduated early. I went to grad school. I graduated early. I just wanted to be an adult when I wanted to be an adult with my whole picture perfect life right in front of me. And when I was 24, I had moved to Philly and I started to really question all those things that I thought that I wanted that were going to make me happy. And I started to really crave and thirst purpose and fulfillment. And I wanted to know what I was here for. I wanted to know my purpose. I wanted to know what my calling was. I wanted everything to make sense. And so I started to spend a lot of time by myself and reading and and trying to sort that out. And for anybody who's ever been on that journey, it's really frustrating and it takes a long time. At least it did for me. It took two years of looking underneath proverbial rocks and, you know, talking to people, asking questions, like I said, reading books, and I couldn't find it. The only thing that had remained consistent about myself from the time I was 16 to now, again, 26, was that I was running and it was still so powerful for me. I I felt the best I felt all day when I was running. I felt strong. I felt invincible. I felt in control. I felt alive. And when I was running um, one day in Philadelphia in May, I passed this homeless shelter, which I literally, I mean, I, when I'm saying the word literally, like I literally mean it. I had passed this homeless shelter thousands of times. I had to walk by it to and from work. I had ran by it, you know, twice a day. Uh, and I never really paid attention. I never thought twice about the people that I saw. I just didn't. And part of me says that now and it's embarrassing, but it's the truth. And For whatever reason, in May 2007, you know, these group of guys and I noticed each other. They were hanging out outside the homeless shelter and, you know, they waved at me and I waved at them. And next day it happened again. And pretty soon there was this rapport going on that was quick and brief, but like fun and punchy. And one day I just kind of stopped in my tracks and thought, oh my God, like, why am I running by these guys and leaving them there? Why don't I start a running club and run with them? And you know, like Oprah talks about her aha moment. It's like my whole body was flooded with dopamine when this idea hit me. And I was just like, oh my God, this is it. Like, that's it. That is what, 
you're such an idiot, Anne. Like you've been running by this homeless shelter for so long. And like, this has been it all this time. I mean, when I knew it from the idea, like I knew it from the very get-go of like, I knew what I was supposed to do. It's almost like I was being guided. And I just, you know, I, the reason I was running by that place over and over again was because I wasn't seemingly getting the message. And so I, I emailed the director of the homeless shelter. I found it online and I was just like, my name is Anne. I run by this place every day. I want to start a running club. You know, can I do that? And this guy didn't email me back. I kept emailing. I have this very talented skill of like badgering people without being annoying. I seem to know my limit there. I love that. And yeah. And he responded and, you know, kind of told me not to get my hopes up here that like, and, you know, this is a homeless shelter. These guys have other things to worry about. And for all intents and purposes, kind of told me that like homeless people don't run. And I just, I couldn't shake the feeling convinced him to meet with me. And I think through meeting with me, he just saw how pure like my actions were and my thoughts and my desire of wanting to do this. So he told me he would at least ask and be like, okay, Ann, I'll ask. But again, I don't want you to get your hopes up here. So he asked and nine guys when said yes. And they're like, we want to run. And so I went up there into the shelter. There was a chapel inside the shelter. And I meet these guys for the first time. And for the first time in a long time, I had finally felt like I was home and that I had found my people. And the reason I felt that way was because of my dad, you know, like here's a bunch of men who are struggling with their own addictions. And for so long, I couldn't figure out how to help my dad. I didn't know what to do. I didn't understand addiction. So I decided to help myself. And then 10 years later, here I am being given this opportunity to help people who remind me of my dad. And I somehow feel vicariously, I'm like healing myself through this. Like it just, it made so much spiritual sense that like you couldn't plan this thing, which is why I felt like I was being guided. And, you know, I bring shoes and and clothes. I got shoes donated. I was all in on this idea. And we had our first run together on July 3rd of 2007. And I told the media, I wanted to get, you know, more people involved. And I had a few media contacts there from the work I was doing before. And everybody had the same reaction, which is, wait a minute, like homeless people don't run. Like, you mean you're like hosting a run to raise money for the homeless? Like what? And they just like, couldn't grasp the concept of men living in a homeless shelter that were going out for a run voluntarily. And so every media outlet, and I'm not kidding when I say everyone, I showed up that day and you would have thought that the the mayor was, you know, on the corner or the president of the United States. Like there was six or so cameras, you know, TV, newspapers, everybody had to come and see this for their own eyes. And it was just like nuts. It broke people's brains to think that somebody who's homeless could also be a runner. And what happened that day was all these reporters go and talk to Mike and Darren and Craig and Joe, and they ask them why they're doing this. And they get answers that any of us would give, which is, oh, I want to get healthy. I used to run as a kid. I kind of liked it. I wanted to meet some new people. I thought this might be fun. I mean, just answers that any normal person would give. And you just could see the humanity sort of seep through the bones of these reporters of like, of course, 
What did I think they were going to say? And so we ran a mile that day. And some of us, you know, ran it decently. And some of us took 25 minutes to get that mile done. But packed together that like nobody ran alone. And we were going to be a team and we were going to do this together. And so everybody went back to get Joe, who was the slowest guy. And there was something special that happened that day. And on Friday, they showed up again. And every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 6 a.m., this group of people was showing up. And all of a sudden, more people started to show up. And it only took a couple weeks for this vision to get bigger. It was really clear to me what was happening. And there was an environment brewing where individuals were starting to feel good about who they were. And as you might imagine, the stereotype that surrounds the word homeless and someone who is homeless, right? Lazy, dangerous, bum, no good, screw up, alcohol, whatever, nothing positive. And what we were doing was changing that association. These guys were now runners and they were athletes and they were teammates. They were disciplined. They were ambitious. They were early morning risers. They were goal setters. They were training for something. And when you start to change your identity, and this is a humanity and a people lesson right here, what you think of yourself is who you will be. What you think of yourself is how you will show up. It's how you will operate. It is who you will become. And if you can't get your belief systems right and your mindset right about the type of person you are and what you're capable of, change is never going to happen for you. And so knowing that, right, when people would discredit this organization or think, how does running help the homeless? I'm like, you're missing it. We are using running as a vehicle to change the identity of these individuals, to change the way they see themselves. Because if they continue to see themselves as someone who deserves to be homeless, that is what they will always be. There is no amount of program. There is no shelter. There is no amount of funding that will change any of that. And there was, in my mind, it was the entire step that the whole system was overlooking. I was watching these guys. I was seeing that they were showing up every day voluntarily because they wanted to be there. And I watched their reaction when I would take the marker next to their name at the end of every run and color in the miles we did because we tracked it. It was important to track our progress and our goals and just the excitement and the proudness that they would all feel for themselves and for each other. And it was just another factor for me that helped me realize, again, we are all the same. We all need to have a positive belief system about ourselves to make our life great. And we need to be put in an environment where we are celebrated and appreciated in order to be able to do that. And that was happening for these guys. And so it was very clear for me of this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. I know what I need to do. I know that I can build programming around this, get funding, And the end goal is not going to be to create a running club within a homeless community. The goal is to use running as a vehicle to change identity and mindset so that we can build more self-sufficiency in these individuals' lives and get them living independently, get them a job and get them homes. And we will build relationships with employment partners, with housing partners. But there's no point in doing any of that if these guys don't think that they deserve it. 
you know, your deeper story, which I got to watch you on TED Talk, and I'm telling everybody, you've done three TED Talks. You got to go watch them. They've had hundreds of thousands of views. And your your deeper story is you turning down a lucrative job offer there in Philadelphia to do this and how everybody cautioned you or warned you or pleaded with you, don't do it, and you're making a mistake here. And I, and I want everybody to listen to that part of the story too. Of course, I have too many other questions and ways that I want to take this conversation today. But part of this story, I remember hearing you say that in the beginning, you had some shoes donated for these runners. Of course, yeah. they were old uh, used shoes. Can you tell that part of the story? They actually weren't old shoes. <laughs> uh, they were brand new shoes. And the reason for that win was I didn't want to show up there in my new shoes and give these guys old dirty used shoes right away. That was going to tell them that I deserve new shoes and that they deserve old shoes. And I didn't want their feet to hurt. I didn't want any of that. So I got the shoe sizes of all of the men and I went and got all of the shoes donated from a local running store. So they all got a new pair of shoes. I didn't want any excuses. I didn't want any anything to get in the way of these guys's new career with, with running. And I wanted everything to get off on a right foot, so to speak. That's great. Now back of my feet currently has chapters all over the country. Yes. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. What an incredible story. And And there's lots of parts of that story that I really love. But when you talk about that basic human need to receive validation and encouragement and praise, And I know that that's a big part of your messaging as well. Can you just touch on that for a second? Yeah. Listen, the number one reason when why people leave their jobs is because they think their boss is an asshole. And it just goes to show you that, again, we are all looking for the same thing. It doesn't matter our backgrounds, our gender, our age, the color of our skin, Right above food and shelter in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is this need to feel love and appreciated and desired. And all of us spend this life seeking that. We seek it in an intimate partner. We seek it in friendships. And when people are spending eight to 10 hours, five days a week at work, that is one of the most important places for them to feel that. And so when that appreciation isn't there, you know, and again, whether you feel it from friends or partners, whatever else, we leave it if we're not getting it. And it can be one of the most, for those who get it right, especially in a professional setting, and you can give that praise and appreciation and respect to the people who are there working. Same goes for our partners. Many of us forget to do that and show gratitude to our partners, to our friends for being who they are and showing up the way that they do. It's what makes things stronger. And if you forget to do that, at some point, the thing will break. I love that message. I was told that for people to receive that validation from us, whether again, that's in our personal lives and our families or at work, that's oxygen. That's oxygen for people. And it's not just that little kids yeah. need that. Grown adults need that too. And I'm so grateful to you that through this story and and what you have built since then, since this initial experience of of creating this running group with the homeless men, um, I just love that that's a big part of your message. And you you have multiple success ventures and you have built this business aimed at helping people be what you call the best version of themselves. And you're, you call yourself a serial entrepreneur, which I, I love. 
You talk about the ability to live fully. I heard you once say that you deserve to live life at a 10, mm-hmm. which I, I love that. Oh, and I also, not right now, but I also want to get into uh, your Valentine's Day posting because that's uh, <laughs> that, was, that was a powerful message too that our listeners are going to love. But so this whole idea of the best version, living the best version of ourselves, what does that mean? That means something different for everybody. And I think it's really easy to get caught up in making decisions for our lives based off of societal, biological, familial pressures that are really easy to persuade us. And all of us have to get really clear about what it is that our priorities are. And we need to live in those on a consistent basis. And I'm not saying they don't change. I mean, when mine have changed several times and one of the things I I speak a lot about and I'm passionate about, especially as it relates to women, is changing your mind and changing direction, especially when you have new emotions, when you have new information, when you have new dreams is important and it should be celebrated instead of, you know, oh, well, this thing failed. You didn't follow through with it. You you know, I've called off two engagements and you can either call those failed engagements or you can call them celebratory decisions. It's all about <laughs> the phrasing of them. And just because something doesn't last forever doesn't mean it was failed. My biggest priority for myself is whenever a year comes to an end, I want to look at that year and be like, man, I really squeezed every ounce out of it for what was important to that year. And that the next year might not look anything like this particular year. It can look completely different. I want to feel like I am growing and learning and putting myself in positions of that. And that's uncomfortable, right? And when I say this a lot, but you ask everybody like, do you want to grow? And 99 people probably will be like, yeah, I want to grow. Growing is shedding, it's changing, it's letting go, it's stepping into something new. And those things, when push comes to shove, are not easy to do, but we don't grow without them. And a lot of people think that their life is going to look so different in five years from now. And I always challenge them and I say, okay, how is your life different now than it was five years ago? And it doesn't become different over time, it becomes different over action, over over effort, over taking the step toward making it be different. Like time doesn't do anything. And if you're not in the driver's seat, what it will do is wash over you. And you're like, oh my God, now I'm X years old. And I've been saying, I wanted to start this company for 20 years. Oh my God. I've been saying, I want to run a marathon for five years and I haven't done it. All that we do when we talk about future sense, meaning, oh, I'm going to do that someday. You're just buying yourself more time and the someday makes you feel good enough today that you don't actually have to commit to it. But wow. when you and I know smart enough that the number one thought people have when their time is up or they enter you know, a certain age, it's regret. And I will not be one of those people. I would rather try and learn, oh, that wasn't what I thought it was. Now I know, but I will never be one of those people that makes a pipe dream and fantasize about it and what it would be like. I will always try and see how it goes. And if it doesn't work or I'm not happy, guess what, guys, we don't live in a video game. You don't have four decisions to make in your life and game over. You have unlimited amount of decisions. You can change your mind a gazillion times if you want. 
But that the, the going forth and then changing the direction is much more satisfying than not going anywhere. Well, I just, I just, I love the messaging and I love it that it's coming from you because people do talk about that. I'm going to do this. I, I value this. I value my family. I value my health and my wellness, but then their behavior doesn't back that up. Right. Yeah, I value my kids, but I'm not spending quality time with them. Or when I am with them, I'm on my phone all the time, or I value health and wellness. And of course I want to live that life, but you know, gosh, I I'm just going to skip the gym again today. I'm not going to commit to that diet, that exercise routine again. And I mean, you're one of the fitness gurus. And of course we want to talk about that, but all of those are just metaphors for how we live our lives. Well, and when, you know, also I'll tell you being a good friend is not letting someone get away with that. And like we can, when we lie to ourselves, the only person we're hurting is ourselves. And so I think it's a really great exercise to write down what are your values? What are your priorities? And then write down how much time you spend on those and be honest with yourself. Like you can't change anything without the proper information. And so if you're going to continue to lie to yourself and be hypocritical about what you say is important, but nothing backs it up. One, people get tired of that, right? I don't really have a tolerance for those types of people. And I don't have anybody in my life who, who does that. If you're going to talk the talk, but not walk the walk, I don't really have any interest in spending any time with you. Right. And I, I think it's slightly related, but you know, our reputations, and I think people don't think about this enough. I think about my reputation quite a bit. Am I who I say I am? Am I showing up in ways that I say that I do? And what do the people that I care about think about me? Do they think I show up in that way and how I treat them and, you know, whatever. And this, this person just sent me a note today. He's like, oh, this reminded me of you. And he's like, grind while they sleep, learn while they party and live while they dream. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I do. And I love that that person saw that post somewhere and was like, this is Ann Malum. It makes me feel like who I am and think I am is how I'm showing up in the world. And if you really want a hard dose of reality, it's worth doing that exercise. And frankly, you want to take it a step further, ask the people closest to you of what your reputation is. Ask them and see if it's lining up with who you want to be and who you think you are. Wow. I mean, you talk about having a friend that you give permission to, please tell me. And you're not talking about a large circle of people. You're talking about a very, very small circle, correct? Yeah. The ones who know you best, the ones who, you know, the scene you've operated in stressful situations, the people that, you know, whether it's a, a family member, you know, how you show up, what is it like? Like when I say I'm coming home to North Dakota, what does my family think? Are they like, oh man, Anne's coming home? Or are they like, oh my God, Auntie Annie's coming home and like, we can't wait to have so much fun with her. Like I have to, I think people forget about this all the time at, at work. Are you always complaining about something? Do you have a great attitude? Do you show up? Are you fun? Are you always on your phone? Are you loud? Are you inconsiderate? Like there's so many things. Our, our reputations are built on our consistent behaviors. And so again, often we just don't think about that. I had a friend over Sunday night and I had so much going on and I, I told him, I'm like, listen, can you just give me 15 minutes? I need to go deal with something. Otherwise I'm going to be distracted the whole time we're here. And I want to be present for you. I would rather sacrifice 15 minutes with him 
and go take care of and take care of rather than spend the next two hours of looking at my phone constantly and making him feel like whatever he's saying is less important than what's happening on my phone. But it's having the awareness to know that and do something about it. And again, that's the consistency in behaviors that we all got to pay attention to and the reputations we create for ourselves. Well, if you're talking about the Ann Malum brand, you call it your reputation. I just think credibility is huge. I want to be credible as a dad. You know, so simple things, not so simple, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm the room parent for my daughter's class, and I have been since pre-K. So this is the seventh year at her school, seven years in a row. I'm the room parent. But again, credibility. And, and I love it that you're talking about this authentic life. Now, you, I've heard you say that uh, questioning societal norms and continuously in reinventing yourself is uh, something that you value. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I think I do a good job at this, if I'm being honest. Again, I'm from North Dakota, 70,000 people in my hometown. And, you know, there's one person I can think of who's a guy that, you know, from high school that isn't married. And I'm not, I've never been married and I don't have kids. I'm not taking that off the table for myself, but I just knew that wasn't the right path for me. There was other things I wanted to do. And Again, I've been engaged twice and and neither one of those went through. And I would rather have taking the engagement step and calling it off versus, oh my God, I said I was going to do this. So I I think I question a lot of what do I want my life to look like today or for the next little while? How do I create my life to look like that? And I always give myself permission to change my mind. And I don't think, again, changing our mind has been given enough credit. It's always looked at as, I mean, look at the politicians. Oh, you're, you flip-flop. Six years ago, you said this. Man, wouldn't it be so refreshing for our politicians to say, yeah, I did say that. And you know what? Over the past six years, I've had numerous experiences and I've been exposed to so much more and I've learned so much more that I actually don't think that anymore. I think this. And it's like, why are we so afraid to change our mind, our belief system, our views when something new shows up that educates us? Instead, we dig in our heels because we've always been that way. And one of the lessons I have learned, you know, you hear people say, well, that's that's just who I am. And I've learned to say, well, that's who I am right now. Because I might not think this in five years from now. I, I mean, who knows? I could go on an incredible trip. Something traumatic could happen to me. I could see something, I could learn something, I could meet someone that completely challenges my view on things. And I'm always going to remain open to that. I much rather feel that it's more enjoyable to go through life that way instead of stuck in my ways, digging in my heels on things that I have said 10 years ago. Well, not only do we do that to ourselves, we do that to other people, like like celebrities who said the wrong thing 10 years ago. So they uh, offended some segment of society, but it was 10 years ago. And of course they got called out, but 10 years later, you know, we're going to cancel them forever for the rest of their lives because they made a mistake. Well, what's the point then? What's the point of us having conversations and going deep with each other if we then don't allow people to say, okay, I I made a mistake and cool, let's move on. Or just even, it was a different time back then. And would I say that now? Absolutely not. But I did, I mean, and again, I'm from North Dakota. When I go back there, some of the things that come out of my family's mouth, they don't know any better. 
They've right. never lived any place else than Bismarck, North Dakota. So for me to expect them to be, you know, renowned or or have the cultural exposure that I have and that they should stay and do the things that it's completely irrational. And I'll tell you, I used to be a lot more liberal. And after the pandemic, I'm a lot less liberal. And I have seen to me, the ultimate form of privilege is expecting the world to revolve around your ideas, your thoughts, your behaviors, your views. And you need to learn. We would be all better off as a society of learning to accept that different viewpoints. I am entirely pro-choice, but can I understand why people are pro-life? Absolutely. I can. I, it's not my journey. And, and I would advocate again for a choice, but like, it doesn't mean I can't understand where somebody is coming from. Mm-hmm. And we have just attacked the other side with no grace. And man, that whole takedown period in 2020 and 2021 of combing back through people's everything and the joy that I saw that people participated in attacking other people and tearing them down. I mean, it's the Tony Robbins stuff for me. And and you alluded to this before this recording started, but it is so much easier to burn somebody else's building down than burn your own building. And the people that I have seen that attack others with such ferocity, it's insecurity and jealousy and no wherewithal on how to create any kind of happiness and joy for themselves. And so their plan of attack is to rip it away or at least try to from other people. That's where their joy and happiness comes from. And the best advice I have about that is you can't worry about those people. I've had those people enough on my tail for decades. And just like you have to learn to ignore it. And if you are one of those people and be honest with yourself, if you gossip about other people, if you discredit somebody else's success, it's probably coming from a place of your own, again, insecurity and your own jealousy and you not dealing with your own issues. So you just attack others. It's a really ugly trait. Right. And it's an ugly world to live in, to not save room and leave room for other people to have their opinion, their preferences, their ideas, and for us to be loving and respectful. It's not what I would choose. It's not how I would do it. It's not what I would vote for. But my gosh, we can still embrace each other on these terms and in these ways. And also when just have just have some grace. I mean, again, I will I will be the first one to raise my hand. I was one of those attacking liberals in my earlier years. I've done it too. And like, so again, I'm raising my hand and saying, I've participated in that. It doesn't get you anywhere. And it's like, we have to show grace for people because I can promise you this. Every single one of us are going to find ourselves in a situation where we need grace from other people. We need to be able to be forgiven. We are all going to say or do something that gets us in hot water, whether on a smaller scale, interpersonally, or on a more public scale, it's going to happen. And if you are, have ever been in a position where you need to ask for forgiveness and you've received it from somebody else, don't you owe that same level of grace to other people also? Well, what a great message. I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. So you made a choice to live alcohol-free. Can you talk about that? Share that journey with us? Yeah. So I have had, you know, again, I had a couple of drinks last year and and whatever, and my my decision on alcohol free when I started this journey. So I, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I definitely know that about myself. I would have no problem admitting if I was, but I also don't want to discredit those who have gone down that journey. So I want to be clear that I had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. 
I was not really one who ever binge drank. Uh, that was not my scene, but I had found myself having a cocktail or two uh, tequila sodas most evenings. And it always was on the table when it was like, good day, bad day, rainy day, Tuesday, catching up with a friend, decompressing by myself. It didn't matter. There was always a reason to do it. And I just allowed it to ha- to form a habit. And so in March of last year, end of March, I'm like, you know what? Like this has gotten out of control. I keep saying again, I'm going to grow out of this, but that's not going to happen unless I actually take the action to stop doing this. So I went 30 days and I'm like, let me go 30 days and see if I can change my relationship. And then I was like, okay, I did 30 days. And then again, I started like, okay, cool. I can have a drink now. And it was like, nope, the habit monkey brain is like, oh, cool. This is back on the table. We can do this. Then the mental gymnastics started all over again. And so in June, I was like, I'm not drinking for the rest of the year. And I just started to go in deep and dive in deep with reading and understanding and And I really got like upset with the alcohol industry, frankly, of how we've all been bamboozled by the marketing and the campaigns and the messaging and how awful this stuff is for us. And it's delivered to us of like, makes your night better. If you're successful, if you're single, if you're a mom, if if you're a bachelor, if you're married, if you're retired, if you're at a ball game, I mean, every single scenario has a brilliant marketing campaign pitch to us on why that particular situation is better with alcohol. And so again, I just started to get really angry and I started to get really vocal around that. And I felt feeling a little bit like a hypocrite that I am, you know, this leader in the fitness and wellness industry and, you know, had been on podcasts talking about how I could never give up my tequila soda. And I'm like, I can't be a proponent of this after now what I know And so I've been a real big advocate on talking to people about going alcohol free and, you know, starting to live your life without it and when honestly, it's like, it's just so much better in every which way. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't know you were alcohol free either. I didn't know you didn't drink, but I'm sure you can speak about that too. But like, it's, it's crazy. And again, I'm like, I've been super, it's been a stressful week for me. Normally I handle my stress really well. I feel like it just, it's been a lot and I'm like, okay. I'm like, I haven't even thought I really want to drink right now. And I'm like, man, like I just needed some reps under my belt or under my liver, so to speak of, of showing <laughs> myself that I don't need it. It doesn't do any benefit. And then if you wake up and you're a little cloudy or you're a little foggy or a little this, now you've got two problems. The stress is still there. And now you're not at your best to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm in this new relationship the past six months or so. It feels much longer than that, but you know, we've never had a drink together. It was never a part of our relationship and the, the intimacy, the connectivity, the the callback jokes. I mean, there's never been a time when we've forgotten what somebody has said. There's never been a fight, alcohol induced. I mean, it's just like, I would challenge you if you are in a relationship and you drink on a pretty regular basis, how many fights you're having when there's alcohol involved? My guess is it's most of the time if you are fighting. So it just, I had too many examples over and over again, where life was just better without it. And the only way for you to know that for yourself is to try it. And I tell people, try not to do 30 days, try to do 90 days. I've I've done the experiment on myself and 90 days, you have enough 30 days when you can just go in a hole and hide, right? Like you could hibernate for 30 days. And, you know, most people do dry January, which I hate for that reason. People just isolate themselves and then they associate 
not drinking with isolation, which is just not accurate. But 90 days, you have to live life. Like someone has a birthday party, someone has an event, you know, you're at a you're at a work function, you're somewhere where you have to continue to put yourself in situations where there's alcohol around and you're saying no to it. And then you have enough of those and you're like, oh gosh, why did I think I needed alcohol to, you know, be my social lubricant? Why did I think I needed alcohol for this and that to go dating? You just learn you show up a whole lot better with your whole self by not doing that. My good friend and mentor, Dr. Daniel Amen, just had his first gala to raise money for his nonprofit. And and uh, it was at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And of course, galas are what happens at a gala? You drink. In yeah. Fact, if you get the audience drunk, they pull out their wallets and you raise more money. That's how you raise money, right? And so here he is on social media for months before trying to tell people uh, why there's not going to be alcohol at his gala. Like, how could I go into a gala to raise money for a cause yeah. An organization that I'm passionate about that is so anti-alcohol, but at that evening to raise money, we're going to serve alcohol. So yeah. Was- and you know, I-, I love that. And I remember back on my feet, you know, and I- I'm ashamed of that. We would have galas and we would have alcohol there. We would have pins of people that would say they weren't drinking. And I'm like, why were we doing that? We should have just not had alcohol. I just didn't know what I didn't know now, right. but Totally. I mean, these work functions when where people like take people off conferences and people are just drinking so much. And I've seen a a New York Times article where there seems to be a trend, at least some corporations now, instead of, you know, letting people have open bars and then they get, you know, it's it's just perpetuating the burnout. They're taking them to spas. They're doing like saunas and and cold plunging and massages and breath work and workouts. And it's like, yeah, that's what's going to help you know, rejuvenate people and make them feel better. It's not the alcohol. Well, I remember, remember that book, I think it was called How to Become CEO. And one of the chapters or one of the phrases in there is office parties are not for partying. Like how many people got demoted because they went to the office party, right? They screwed Seriously. up. And it's all because of the alcohol, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I just, I, it's one of the best things. And frankly, as I think about last year, there's a lot of amazing, beautiful things that happened in 2022 for me. But that was the one of the most incredible things. And just how many people would would DM me, text me, email me, you know, and gosh, you know, I, I followed in your footsteps. I tried it. I, I wouldn't have done it if you didn't go first. It's amazing when you, if you're in your first one in your friend group, you give other people permission. Oh man, I'm going to try this too. Like it's, it's a wonderful gift to give to yourself and to show other people that they can do it too. And it's been probably the biggest when people send me like thank you notes, for, it's been around alcohol for 2022. It's been the thank you around speaking out about alcohol and making me rethink my relationship. Well, good for you. It makes you a target as well, though. I'm, I'm sure as many as a positive responses that you get, you got people coming after you as well. You, you have a target on your back. So yeah, congratulations. Uh, yeah, but like I said, you the the it, that's been that way for so long. It just doesn't it just doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> well, before we start to wrap things up here. Again, I mentioned this Valentine's Day post uh, regarding what it means to be a powerful woman. And I thought that that was so great because that can be such a horrible day for a lot of people. I happen to be in the beauty industry, which is 80 percent women. I love, love, love strong, powerful, incredible women. And I always want to swing the pendulum that way. And I just loved your Valentine's Day post. Do you mind mentioning that? Well, sure. So I'm, you know. This is a much longer conversation, so I'll try to keep it brief, but I'm in this amazing relationship now with a man that I adore, 
And I am a strong, you know, female. And for anybody out there who's a strong female, I've had to play in my masculine energy a lot for work. What, what do you I mean to, by that? Your masculine so, energy. So masculine energy is more around being decisive, being assertive. You know, you've got to make the difficult decisions. You're demanding. You're you're hard driving. Um, you push the team. That's really much more masculine traits. It doesn't mean male or female. It's just masculine energy. And naturally, you know, I wanted to be in my feminine energy, right? More more nurturing, more carefree, more playful, more silly. Like those characteristics of myself when are some of the most prominent that I feel. And I really wanted to be in a relationship where I was creating space for my partner to step into his masculine energy and where I could feel my feminine energy balance that out. And I feel like I have found somebody that allows me to do that, that engages in my, that engages in my playfulness, um, where I feel like he's secure enough to talk to me about his own insecurities and vice versa, you know, confident to have the tough conversations. I just feel like I get to step into this version of myself that has felt so natural to me. I just haven't had somebody, I haven't both been creating the space for that individual to show up. I have been playing the masculine energy role in my prior relationship. So I had to make space for that. And also finding somebody where I wouldn't feel threatened by being in my feminine space, so to speak. I wouldn't feel like I'm being taken advantage of or that my independence is at stake and that I can't be masculine in my job or in other areas. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense, which is why I wanted you to talk about it. Yeah, I would highly recommend. There's a lot of great books out there. The Intimate Communion is one that that I read around masculine female energy. And I do think for females, when there's not a movement out there of men, you know, you mentioned it, right? You're the only guy in, in your kid's school with 59 other mothers, right? There's not a whole lot of men out there who are like, oh, I want to step into the caretaker role. I want to step into the nurturing role, sort of wanting to step into the feminine sort of space. But there is a lot of women who are trying to step into their powerful self because we want to make our own bread. We want to be successful. We are talented. We want to do this. So we're trying to balance playing in our masculine and work so that we can excel and perform and lead teams and make big decisions, but then also wanting to be in a place in our own relationships and at home where we can step into our feminine. And it's really important that we learn to talk about that, explain situations. I know we're running out of time, but I just want to give one quick example of what I mean by that. My my friend and her husband, they were flying and um, they're frankly in the middle of a divorce. And I can say friend because it's an acquaintance. No one would know who this person is. Um, and she was telling me, I want to get the, the divorce. And I started to talk about masculine feminine energy. And she said, oh my God, and I know exactly what you're talking about. They were flying and she just had surgery and she wanted, she's not a nervous flyer when, and she wanted to sit by her husband and her husband, they weren't sitting next to her on the plane. So she asked her husband, Hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Can you please go make sure that we get our seats together? She went to the bathroom, came back and she's like, Hey, did you do that? And he's like, yeah, I asked. They said, no. 
And it's just like for her, and again, I'm speaking to the men and the men out there at this point, for her, all you did was make that woman now go step into her masculine, go negotiate with the attendant who's sitting up behind the desk and figure out and problem solve. All you said to this woman was, I can't figure this out. They said no. And now it became a problem for the woman to solve. That was an opportunity for that particular male to show up, protect, provide a solution and offer safety and security for his partner. And he failed to do it. And that happens over and over and over again. And that's when the masculine feminine energy breaks down. Oh, I like that story because I have to tell you, it was the teachers at my daughter's school who said to me, the favorite day for these kids in the school is when a dad shows up, when a dad volunteers, meaning sometimes it's, we just, that maleness, we need to show up. We just need to finally be present. We show up and we're strong at at work and in sports and in all kinds of other areas of life, but just to to be able to show up as a caretaker, like what you're talking about. Yeah, totally. I I love that. And And, and also when... That can be a masculine thing also of like, I'm showing up for my kid and I want to be here and be a part of their life. Like that's an attractive trait. If you're asking me. There you go. Do you have a final message for listeners, Anne? Oh, well, as you can tell, I have a lot to say. Um, Listen, I think what we're all seeking is joy, happiness, and fulfillment. And I just urge everybody. And again, as somebody who ran back on my feet and created this amazing organization and at some point, you know, moved on. And then I'm now at solid core and I moved on from that. There's not a destination. We have to constantly figure out what provides us joy, happiness, and fulfillment, and it's going to evolve and change. So I encourage you to figure out what that means for you today, step into that and do that. And don't be afraid or frustrated when those things start to feel like they're evolving. That means you're growing. And when your priorities shift or your interests shift or your values shift, like it's a great thing and get curious about it and step into that. That's what helps me feel like I am squeezing everything out of life. Wow. You know what? This turned out to be exactly what I had hoped for it to be. A wonderful exchange and, and mainly me sitting back letting you just soar and shine and you are beautiful at what you do so i can't thank you enough and thank you so much my pleasure thanks for your patience with me when 